affections and uh, our desires and our wishes and our hopes to be brought before you and submitted uh, to your will. And so, Father, as we look to your word, help us uh, even now. Uh, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. You guys can be seated. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1, and we'll continue our study in this great epistle from the Apostle Paul to uh, the Philippian church. So far in this book, we have seen in the first five verses in the gospel greetings, the grace-filled greetings, that our hearts ought to be like Paul's grateful in the gospel for the work of God. And then we looked at chapter 1, verse 6, just that verse by itself, how we are to have confidence in God whose work in our lives is from beginning to end. In verses 7 through 11 of chapter 1, we looked at how we must acknowledge God's work in ourselves and in other people. In Paul's great example of prayer and how we, are, how we ought to express thanksgiving to God for his work. And then last time, which seems like ages ago, which it kind of was before Thanksgiving, we looked at uh, verses 12 through 18 about how we must cultivate a heart after God's mission, how we must acknowledge his providence, how we must prioritize kingdom progress above our own, and how we must Rejoice in Christ proclaimed no matter what. Well, if this great epistle has been a challenge to your heart so far, if, if it's been a help in seeing your need to humbly acknowledge God's work in and through other people around you, if it has encouraged you to see the world through grace-filled eyes a little bit better, and if it has convicted you of your need to be about God's mission and not your own, I believe Tonight, as we approach this crucial passage before us, we'll, by the grace of God, see more of the same themes, more of the same challenge and help as we continue in this ascent in exploring transcendent joy. Uniquely Christian joy. Joy that eclipses and supersedes all other kinds of joy. In this passage, Philippians 1, 18 to 26, we enter into the Roman prison cell with the Apostle Paul. And we get a close-up look at Paul's heart as he paces the cell, pondering his future and all that God might have for him. His impending trial looming on the horizon with uncertainties and also unfilled desires to minister to the church at large, and yet his overwhelming joy here in this passage. And it's joy found only in Christ. So turn, if you haven't already, to Philippians 1, and we'll begin in verse 18, the very beginning of verse 18, just for a little bit of context. Philippians 1, starting in verse 18, Paul writes, What then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And in our passage tonight, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know 
that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Father, thank you for your inspired, inerrant, infallible word. It is by this word that we are made to be more like your son. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would illumine our minds and work in our hearts, even tonight, that Christ would be all. In Jesus' name, amen. What do all of these people have in common? Gandhi, Hitler, Stalin, Winston Churchill, Martin Luther King Jr., Reagan, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, John Paul II, Jeff Bezos, Putin, Obama, Mark Zuckerberg, Trump, Greta Thunberg, Elon Musk, Vladimir Zelensky, and you. In 2006, when most of you were in the first five years of your life, getting diapers changed every moment, like all of these other fine folks on this list, you were Time Magazine Person of the Year. You were, according to Time Magazine, for 2006, the person, group, idea, or object that, for better or for worse, has done the most to influence the events of that year. Now, Time Magazine's reasoning in choosing you was focused on the contribution of information to the internet, namely wikis, by many yous, individuals who, from our individual knowledge and experiences, made the internet that year and the world what it was in 2006 and what it is today. Now, only if you, time person of the year in 2006, could see the person you are today. I mean, if you were person of the year back then, now with your plans and goals and 
solid direction in life, right? Changing your major this week. Knowledgeable in chemistry and computer science and the Bible. You've got good grades and a social life. You're able to win at soccer and futsal in the same quarter twice each time in the IMs. I mean, come on, the world is your oyster. You are, at least in your own little publication in your head, the person of the year every year, not just 2006. You are what makes your world go. For better or for worse, you have done the most to influence the events of your life this year. Your existence is about your progress, your development, your growth as an individual. That's why you're here at UCLA. But it's also about your comfort and your enjoyment and your happiness on a scale of 1 to 10, right? You are what makes the sentence, you do you, make any sense. I mean, half of you have a PowerPoint about yourselves on your cloud storage in a world that is supposed to be all about you. Philippians 1 is aimed at the very core of who you are. Your very existence, where you find identity, what you value, what you place worth in, what you worship, that is, and what you live for, and what you would die for. The Apostle Paul, bound in chains, is for us tonight the premier example of a fundamental truth of the Christian existence that we see in our passage tonight. And it's this. For the Christian, in life and in death, Christ is all. For the Christian, in life and in death, Christ is all. Tonight I want to examine the Apostle Paul's great example in this and challenge your soul with this truth. For the Christian in life and in death, Christ is all. And Paul shows us, uh, by his own example, what it looks like when Christ is all. He, he does things in this passage and desires things in this passage and believes things that are distinct and otherworldly. And they are driven by the fact, the simple fact, that to him, Christ is all. So we'll see tonight in our passage three marks of an existence centered on Christ. The first mark is this. Those to whom Christ is all rejoice in future deliverance. Those to whom Christ is all rejoice in future deliverance. We'll see that in verses 18 to 20. In this first section of our passage, Paul lets us in on his thinking. His primary concern as he awaits trial before the Romans isn't that he be freed from his change, chains. But it's that Christ would be honored. 
anyway, whether Paul lived or he died. Look again at the second half of verse 18 and verse 19. And it says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Verses 18 and 19 set the tone for this entire section tonight. And here Paul reiterates, he has, as he did last time we were in Philippians, continuing reason to rejoice. You see, Paul, despite his imprisonment, said in the previous section, not only will I rejoice as I see others, both in pretense or in truth, proclaiming Christ and the gospel going forth, that makes me rejoice. Now here, he says, yes, and I will rejoice. Why? For I know that this, this whole thing of me being in jail, will turn out for my deliverance. Now, Bible scholars have pointed to the fact that when Paul says, this will turn out for my deliverance, that he is borrowing from the words of Job, the greatest example of faith in God amidst trial. Uh, You don't have to turn there, but in Job 13, uh, Job says this. He says, this will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him, that is God. And then later in verse 18 of that same chapter, he says, Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. You see, Job had lost everything. His family, his possessions, his livelihood. And his friend Zophar, friend that he is here, is saying to Job, Job, by virtue of your sin, you deserve what you got but you deserve even worse. Which, in some circles, is good theology. But to Job, he speaks the truth in response to that in Job 13, and he says what I just read, and he says the truth that Paul here in Philippians 1 also hangs on to in the face of trial. And that's this, that the godly, imperfect as they are, point taken so far, when before God in final judgment, godly men and women will be vindicated by virtue of faith in God. This side of the cross, we can understand the economy of that. Those to whom Christ is all because we are bought with his blood, forgiven of our sins, may face accusation and shame and judgment from the world, but in the end, before God the Creator, we will stand justified, vindicated, delivered, saved by virtue of the blood of Christ. Imperfect as we are, we are forgiven. And so Paul emanates a joyful confidence, not in his own ability to exonerate himself before Caesar in the coming trial, confidence not in saving himself or in something that he can do to get out of prison, not in God freeing him from prison either with an earthquake, which both he and the Philippians have seen before. Paul has confidence instead, joyful confidence in his deliverance in 
eternity. As Paul sits in prison, literally bound in his present circumstances, he isn't like we often are, focused on how to get out of our current troubles. He isn't worried about the midterm exam, so to speak. And he looks not just to the final exam. He'll pass those by the grace of God because he's been faithful with the material of life that he's been given. Confidently, joyfully, and not by his own abilities, Paul looks to the graduation. In fact, much could be said about this, but look at verse 19 again. Paul knows that he will be found faithful only by way of the Philippians' prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit. It says, therefore, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. You see, Paul knows he needs help, and he knows the power of of prayer, and he knows how God hears and how by His Spirit He empowers those who are His to live for Him. And so Paul rejoices in deliverance because he knows that by prayer and the Spirit's help, not by anything he can do, that he will receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is his time of need. With a date, with the Roman court impending, Paul fixes his gaze past that date into eternity. And he knows that when he gets to that heavenly court, God will deliver him on the merit of Christ and reward him for his faithful service to Christ. Now to be clear, Paul wants to be free from prison. In fact, we can infer from this passage, both, both these two verses in verses 25 and 26 also, that it's what he anticipates from his vantage point. It, it's what he sort of expects based on the things happening around him. But he's not presuming upon his being freed here in verse 19 as he speaks of deliverance. How do we know this? Look at verse 20. He says whether by life or by death. Haunting words. Whether by life or by death. You see, exoneration or execution, Paul will seek to honor Christ in his defense of the gospel before Caesar, and he is confident that if he is faithful to do so, that God will vindicate him in glory, whether after that trial, by life or by death. This is a coming deliverance that Paul anticipates that is far greater than being freed from a Roman prison. And yet isn't our fixation when faced with the trials of this life, isn't our fixation our immediate good? We need to find how to get eggs. We need to find how to get out of the rain or the traffic or how to get past these finals or maybe a health trial or the discontentments of our everyday lives. We want to be freed. We want to be able to use our gas stoves. We want to be over with this whole thing. 
We want God to prove himself to us in all these little things and on our timeline. All while the horizon of eternity is ever before us right there. When Christ will vindicate us forever. And while we ought to be more like Paul here, to whom Christ is everything. Paul's concern isn't whether he'll be freed or not. His concern is that Christ would be magnified. And his rock-solid confidence is that in eternity, Paul, he will be delivered, found unashamed, vindicated for being faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because of that confidence that he has, that joy that he has in Christ and the treasures far beyond this earth and this existence, Paul is able to focus on what really matters because he has that confidence. And what really matters is the task at hand for him in this trial. And it's to honor Christ in his body. Paul's security and certainty in the person and work of Christ who secures his eternal deliverance allows him to not be so insecure about the likelihood of his earthly deliverance. You see, to those whom Christ is everything, there is confidence and a joy in knowing the eternal outcome way ahead of time. If Christ would be all to you, it would free you up from fretting about the insecurities of this life. And so Paul, from a Roman prison, is our example from greater to lesser. How much more us as Christians, who at least right now have it just great, we're not in a Roman prison. Can we see that if we have Christ, there is nothing that can stand against us? That if we, like Paul, know the vindication coming in eternity for us who know Jesus, there is nothing that can separate us from his love. Later in Paul's life, when facing imprisonment again, in fact, his final imprisonment, Paul would write a similar sentiment. Turn to 2 Timothy 4 to see this. 2 Timothy 4, verse 18. And Paul writes a similar idea as he bids farewell to his son in the faith, Timothy, and the churches around. He says this, 2 Timothy 4.18, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Grace on campus, if to you Christ is all, you have every reason to rejoice no matter your present circumstance because of the certainty of your future deliverance. The second truth, the second mark that we find in our passage in Philippians 1 is this. 
those to whom Christ is all revolve around Christ. Those to whom Christ is all not only rejoice in future deliverance, but revolve around Christ. We see this in verses 21 to 24. We see in this portion that if Christ is all to us in life and in death, then our very desires and our affections, our thinking and our logic, our decisions and our faculties, everything in us will revolve around Christ. Paul continues to lay his heart bare here in this passage with really the key phrase in verse 21. Look there. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Friends, this is such an important verse, such an important passage that we're going to spend the entirety of next week studying just that one verse. Riley's going to take us through that and look at the implications of what this means, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. In Greek here, you know I don't like to use Greek a lot, but it's helpful. Literally, it's just this. For to me, to live is, Christ to die gain. Sounds like a Star Wars character talking. There's no verbs. It's just simple and straightforward recognition of Paul's mentality here. His outlook on life. His life verse. I know there's a lot of life verses for Paul, but this could be one of them. His, his modus operandi is he operates on this planet to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's it. As Paul contemplates the possibility, possibilities about his future, that we've seen already he isn't concerned about the outcome of the court decision because he beholds with joyful confidence his vindication in eternity. Well, now Paul gives us the reasoning of his heart, the reason why he thinks that way. This word for, that verse 21 starts with, for to me is oh so important. It can be understood simply like the word because. You see, I rejoice in my deliverance for or because, here's the reason, here's the basis, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I have reason to rejoice and to be confident because to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so uh, this is the reason or the basis for why Paul thinks and believes the way he does in this entire section. And Paul, Paul dials in on one thing. Well, really, one person that matters. Christ. Jesus Christ. See, Paul, like many of us, had found life in Christ. And now to Paul, all of life was in and through and for 
Christ, uh, Paul's overarching purpose in life was to live for and to love and to serve Christ. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And Paul says, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Because I have been crucified with Christ and I have been raised with him. I have found life with him and it's Christ who lives in me. And anything I do in the flesh, I do by faith in that Son of God who gave himself up for me. Paul develops this idea in his theology later in this book of Philippians. Look at chapter 3. Verse 7, we'll look at this obviously in depth in a little bit, but we need to take a sneak peek because it's just classic Paul and classic Philippians. Philippians 3, verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss catch this, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. We will obviously study this later this year in detail, but even that one phrase in verse 8, is so helpful to our understanding of chapter 1, verse 21. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, Paul says. It's so helpful as we consider what Paul means here in chapter 1, verse 21. You see, everything in life for Paul pales in comparison to knowing and beholding and savoring Christ. Everything is as rubbish compared to the value of loving and serving Jesus. To Paul and to us as Christians, Christ is above and over all. He is supreme. He is preeminent. You know, we need to look at Colossians 1. Turn to Colossians 1. We need to see Christ as he really is Colossians 1. Look at verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, Paul, to the Colossian church, writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all 
things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. If you are a Christian tonight, is this Christ not worthy of your worship with the entirety of your being? If you are a Christian, should not Christ be all? If you know him, and yet tonight, and maybe in this season of life, your attention and your affections are admittedly diverted elsewhere, why is he not everything to you? For Paul, in prison, when the comforts of everyday life should have meant everything to him, Christ meant far more. Christ is all. Christ is enough. Christ is everything. And to Paul, and he should be everything to us. Now, as Paul sits in prison, it reminded me of a concept I've read of before. It's called the special meal. Almost universally, a prisoner's last meal is a customary ritual in which the prisoner gets the freedom to select what the last meal will be. This tradition is often seen as sort of a gesture, a final mercy extended to the inmate. Fascinating records have been kept of special meals. If you want to go on a morbid study break, find the wiki. These meals range from KFC, can I get an amen, to crazy unexplained things, unless you probably met these people, a single unpitted black olive. Two, of course, especially in the Texas and Oklahoma and Arkansas sorts of inmates, extravagant spreads of ribs and steaks and double cheeseburgers and pizzas. Special meal. See, for Paul, sitting in a Roman prison, he would have had a special meal request. It was what Jesus said in John 4. Jesus says this to his disciples who were quibbling about whether Jesus had had something to eat yet that day. Jesus says this, and this, I believe, is what Paul is saying in Philippians 1.21. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Even unto death, for Paul in Philippians 1.21, to live would be to exist only for the all-consuming goal of proclaiming Christ, that others would also know Christ. Look at verse 22 of Philippians 1, 
if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. If Paul were to be free, it would not be for himself, not just to enjoy his freedom. It would mean fruitful labor for him in the gospel. It would mean churches planted, synagogues evangelized, meaningful gospel partnerships established, believers equipped and strengthened. For to Paul, existence on this planet meant what he said in 1 Corinthians 2.2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. For to Paul, to live is to Colossians 1.28. Proclaim Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom in order to present everyone mature in Christ. And in verse 29 of Colossians 1, Paul says, For this I toil. For to Paul, to live is Christ. It's to know Christ and to make Christ known. And yet for Paul here, there was the very real and distinct possibility that this imprisonment and this impending trial would end in his death for the gospel cause. That for doing what he lived to do, serving Christ and proclaiming Christ, he might be put to death. And here in Philippians 1.21, his theology accounts for that. You see, to Paul, to whom Christ is all, to die would be gain. This is not some twisted martyr mentality where death for the cause is the grand prize. To be clear, this is not Paul feeling sorry for himself about the woes of this life either. Paul here simply is anchored on a basic truth of our Christian faith and that ought to be more true to us that Christ is that infinitely valuable that while to live is to serve and love and pursue Him, to die is gain because that would mean being in the presence of the Savior. To pass from this life into the next would be to see Jesus face to face. We would behold our Savior in perfect unity and perfect peace and perfect holiness. Look at verse 23. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. To die would be gain because it would be to cease from sin and 
escape all suffering and imprisonment. And we will be made holy and righteous in the presence of Jesus. 1 John 3, verse 2, speaking of if Jesus returns before we die, it's the same truth. It says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. To live is Christ, and to die is gain, because we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is. Paul says here he is hard-pressed between the two options before him. Not as if it were actually up to him, but in expressing his desires. You've got to think that Paul, in chains between two praetorian guards, has an image of being pressed in from both sides as he contemplates his desire to minister to the churches and be freed and still be on this earth, and then also his desire to be with Jesus. And his desire to be with Jesus, which he says at the end of verse 23 we just saw, is far better, he says. It's far better to depart and be with Christ. This is what Paul says also in 2 Corinthians 5. He says this, We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. The blissful truth of final peace for Christians. And yet Paul, servant of Christ that he is, knows in his mind and in his heart that there is much gospel work to be be done. And so as he contemplates further, he has been convinced since that fateful day on the road to Damascus that the Lord has used for him as an honorable vessel. And just as quick as he is to contemplate what it would be like to die and be with Christ. He turns and look at verse 24. He says this, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. We can feel Paul's heart ebb and flow in his desires and affections for Christ and for those who are Christ's. Paul's assessment is that it is more necessary for him to live and minister to the Philippians and to the early church. While it's far better to be with Christ in death and in eternal life, he deems it here more necessary than even what is to him and his desires far better. If we're honest, this is a value system alien to most of us. Our thinking and our desires don't revolve around Christ in this kind of way that to live is to serve Christ and to know Christ and to love Christ and to die is gain because we'd be with Him. For to us, living is playing and dying is losing. For to us, living is you and dying is hoping to leave some legacy of you. 
For to us, living is some kind of bucket list, and dying is to have lived a full life, hopefully. But for the Christian, in life and in death, Christ must be all. And if Christ is all, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. There was a saying in Paul's day, all roads lead to Rome. For the Christian, in life, in death, all roads lead to Christ. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Would that not just be Paul's motto in Philippians 1, 21, but that, would that be our life song as we live for Christ? Uh, to know Christ, to be more like Christ, Christ and to make him known. And then when God's time is for us, whether Christ returns or he tarries and calls us to meet him in the air, would we then experience the gain that it is to be in the presence of Christ? Would that be how we think and operate and feel and, and believe and desire And would this life be in respect to that truth? So far we've seen that those to whom Christ is all rejoice in future deliverance and they revolve around Christ. Finally in this text tonight we see that those to whom Christ is all rest in God's sovereignty. Those to whom Christ is all Rest in God's sovereignty. We see that in verses 25 and 26. Almost as if snapping back to reality in his immediate situation, Paul realizes that beyond his desire to depart and be with the Lord, that is far better, and beyond his conviction that it is for the church's benefit that he remain alive, perhaps more pressing and more real than anything he has just considered and pondered in his heart. It's the fact that in the kind providence of God, he's still here. He's still, though in prison, he is with the Philippian believers here on this earth. He is chained, yet he is still commissioned by God. He is sidelined, yet he is still useful for the Father's work. Look at verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. As Paul dwells on the reality of his situation, that he's still behind bars and in chains, his heart swells, and it's as if he talks himself into it, that he is so convinced of the necessity of God's work in the Philippian church, and the churches all over the the world at that time, and that work was done, he realizes, 
very humbly through him. And he says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. This isn't a bold prediction of some kind by Paul, but the resolve of a humble minister. He knows it's not up to him. And as much as his desire is to be with Christ, and as necessary as he sees it to continue his ministry, Paul here is resting in God's sovereignty. He finds himself literally just awake and chained to the Praetorian guards. And Paul knows this, that God has seen him through. And so he hopes in God and knows to trust God's sovereign hand. As far as Paul can see from his situation and maybe from conversations around him, he hopes to be set free as he has been before from jail. He hopes to be free to minister to the churches. And so in verse 26, Paul anticipates a reunion between him and these believers and how they will have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of his coming to them again. Ample cause to glory in Christ because in that moment of reunion, the Philippian believers will have tangible, God-wrought, Paul-shaped evidence of the faithfulness of Christ in life and in death. An evidence of God's sovereignty, a sure sign of gospel progress, uh, the old faithful Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Jew first and also to the Greek, and that that Apostle would preach again. We know how this story ends, at least the story in Philippians. Paul would preach again, and he would be freed. And the gospel would progress because of the Apostle Paul for just a few more years. Now these verses, is, these verses are not a guarantee that if Christ is your all, that you will be free from trouble and get what you want. This instead is a reminder that we ought to be pursuant of God's will in our lives. Trusting Him and participating in His work always. You will have incredible opportunities this quarter to proclaim the Gospel of Jesus Christ on this campus to your lab mates and your classmates, to your floor mates, to your neighbors, to your friends, and even to people you don't know. And so to trust His will and pursue it and participate in His work, that is your calling this quarter. These verses are also a reminder that as we do His will, He will watch over us and care for us and provide for us as His children. And He does that for His children always until, as Paul looks forward in this passage, until God calls His children home. And in Paul's case, He thinks that might not be just yet, if God wills. God did will that. And so for Paul, and for us, with Christ as all, we live for Him, and if we die, we gain Him. 
In 2 Corinthians 5, a passage I alluded to earlier, Paul continues what he was saying. He says this, We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. As you begin the quarter, probably the last thing on your mind coming into tonight was this kind of life and death situation. You are so free, not just from prison, I think, but you're so free this quarter to do what you want to do. You're right now probably deciding which clubs to put more time into, how you're going to use your swipes because you left a bunch over, left over last quarter. You're thinking about how you're going to meet up with everyone you're supposed to. You're mapping out gym days and food spots. Probably catching up with the homies tonight. This was the farthest thing from your mind. I'm, I'm willing to bet. But I am so grateful that as jarring as it is, this is what God's Word had for us tonight. And so we would do well, Grace on Campus, to consider the more weighty matters of our existence like those found in this passage. Whether Christ is all to us. Day by day, we ought to contemplate the reality of living for Christ above all else in a way that makes death make sense, that makes death gain. The Heidelberg, the Heidelberg Catechism, an old church document, puts it this way, and it's what the song we sang earlier is based on. It asks a series of questions and then gives the answers, the first of which is this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Any answer? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. What beautiful words. This is Paul's eager expectation and hope here in Philippians 1. It is the eager expectation of, and hope of the saints of ages past. And it is our eager hope, eager expectation and hope. This joyful, secure, confident, self-forgetful hope built on the bedrock of value and identity being found only in Christ. May we, Grace on Campus, live such that in life and in death, Christ is all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for in it we find truth. And the truth we've found tonight is so simple, yet so foreign to our thoughts and our belief 
in our prayers even, Lord, sometimes to our shame. So Father, would you have worked through this sermon, but also, Lord, by your Spirit, we know the work is not done. By the continuing work of your Word in our lives through faithful men and by your Spirit and our own devotion to Jesus Christ, would you instill this truth in our lives that to live is Christ and to die is gain? And would, would, would that be the banner of truth that flies over us all throughout this life and into eternity? Father, we commit the work of our hands this quarter to you and pray that, Father, we would be found faithful servants of the Most High God, worshipers of Jesus Christ, and doing things, all things, only by the power of your Spirit. We thank you for this time and this word now, and we respond now with grateful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.